Genesis 18. How about Genesis 18? And while you're turning there, I'm going to give you a quick review because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in this. We have moved from observation. What do we see in the Word of God where we define our terms and we, we collect all kinds of information, we ask questions, to interpretation. What do we see moves to what does it say? I can't overstate this, y'all. We are not concerned with what it means to us. We're concerned with what it means. What God says and what he means is of primary importance when it comes to our study of the word of God. Because when you let that variable in of what it means to us, and there is room for that in application, but I'm talking about in our interpretation. What you do is you allow for all kinds of variant ideas to find their way into your scriptural thinking. We don't always understand what God meant, but God always meant what he meant. And we need to do everything we can to grasp that and obey it accordingly. Um, the four steps of application. By the way, our verse that we always start out with, Psalm 119, 18, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. The four steps of application. May I remind you that the human heart most resists change. It's interesting. I know in my own heart, my heart resists even positive change. We get into a, a mold or a groove or what could more accurately be called a rut. We don't really want to get out of it. Because remember, most of the time, we are, we are more at ease in the uncomfortable familiar than the potential positives of not knowing what's coming. These principles we're going to give you are going to help you apply Scripture in any circumstance. First of all, um, know. Know the text, which is the whole point of observation and interpretation. And number two, know yourself. First Timothy 4.16, Paul said, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Take heed unto thyself. What do we need to know about ourselves? We need to know what our liabilities are. And we need to know what our assets are. Now, some people are really good at pointing out their supposed assets. But most people that I've interacted with, and I would include myself in this group, we're really good at pointing out what we think are our liabilities, what limits us, and what keeps us from doing God's will. We need to see both. So, no. Number two, relate. It is critical that we relate ourselves to the Scriptures, that we take spiritual inventory. How does this affect my professional life, my social life, and my internal life? Number three. Oh, by the way, how does the Word work in our lives? There's three ways. It exposes sin, it gives God's commands, and it gives examples to follow. Number three, meditate. Remember that word meditate has the idea, it was used often, of a cow chewing cud. It had taken that nutrient in and periodically would bring it back up and work it again to get more nutrient out of it. 
And that's what we're to do with the Word of God. There's a great application to scriptural memory here. Scripture memory. Um, it's an interesting thing. Uh, scripture memory is dying out amongst the church. And that's unfortunate. Um, well, I want to go down a rabbit trail there, but I'm not. Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. <clears throat> and then finally, we need to practice. What is our ultimate goal in Bible study? To practice truth. To practice truth. What stunts that? Disobedience. The writer, Howard Hendricks, said, Your hunger for the word will be direct proportion to your obedience to it. If you're not obeying it, you're not going to be hungry for it. And if you're not hungry for it, then it's not going to give you anything to obey. So be careful about that. Two ingredients to healthy Christian living. The right food and the right exercise. All right. Now, tonight, we're going to cover lessons 43 and 44. Um, I want to I just go ahead and just give you kind of an overview of Lesson 43. There was, it was difficult for me to put it in outline form. And I think I have this whole, do you have a whole paragraph on yours? I think I did that. This is a summary of Lesson 43. The, it's, taught, it's called Customized Christianity. And I, I'll be candid with you, I don't really like that title. He doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. I wish that he'd have called it something different. But here's basically the overview, pages 329 to 337. To be clear, we as Christians are not afforded the liberty to interpret and apply the Bible in any way we please. This whole exercise, this whole study has been about discerning what the Bible says and applying the correct response. We're not concerned with what the Bible says to with. Um, what the Bible says, wow, that's a terribly worded sentence, forgive me. We're not concerned with what the Bible means to us or how it makes us feel. We are focused on rightly dividing the word of truth and correctly processing that revelation. That said, the interpretation and application of God's word will look different from one Christian to the next. Everyone possesses different gifts, experiences, learning patterns, and approaches, and God has already accounted for all of that. For instance, I was talking in our Bible class today. Our kids all have different strengths and weaknesses and different ways that they learn. Some of our kids, if you take them into a math class and you put a fairly complicated problem on the board... They'll be like, what? And others will be like, I get it. That makes perfect sense to me. But then the kid sitting next to them would look at that problem and say, yeah, I don't have any idea what that means. But then they go to literature class and you read some sonnet. And they're sitting there like, wow, that was beautiful. And the kid that knew the math problem is like, was that even English? Which kid's smarter? It's not a matter of smarter. 
Kids, you know, they talk about right brain versus left brain and things like that. Some people, the best way for them to learn is by repetition. That's most people. That's something we incorporate into all of our teaching around here is repetition. But some people, they've got to do it. Uh, some people, they've got to be involved in it. Some people, you've got to call, you've got to come from the artistic side, and some people, you've got to call, come from the logical side. And God has already accounted for all of that. His word will speak to anyone, no matter how their brain is wired, or sometimes it seems not wired at all. God has already accounted for all of that. His word is unyielding in its truth, but it is also very patient and flexible in its application. And when studying God's word, Endeavor to customize it. And what he means by that is to internalize it as the personal, individual message it was always meant to be. Let's give an example. John 3.16, everybody knows that. Some of us, when we read John 3.16, we get hung up on loved. Wow, he loved us. Some get hung up on he so loved some, some stop that he loved the world. Some get hung up on that he gave. Who's right? Everybody's right. And God is going to use that word and apply it to us where we are and how we learn. And that's one of the amazing, that's the only book that does that. They're just, every other book, there's just a group of people that aren't going to get it. Some of y'all could go home tonight and you could read you could read uh, Beowulf in its original Middle English and just be thoroughly thrilled. And some of you would rather go home and, and read schematics for a, you know, a machine of some sort. Yeah. You know. The Bible, if they'll let it, speaks to everyone. So let it speak to you. Let it be custom in your life. Okay, so that's basically the synopsis of Lesson 43. Now, Lesson 44, <clears throat> nine questions to ask. Just as with observation, we, do, we want to ask a lot of questions. And as we apply Scripture, the author suggests nine questions to have at the ready, no matter what passage you find yourself studying. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on this new content, and, uh, and we'll get right into it. Father, thank you for what you've taught us already in, this, uh, in, this, in these lessons. And God, I just pray that you would, uh, as we wrap this up tonight and next week, I pray, God, that you would um, just give us an unusual grace to learn more tonight. May we walk away from this, Lord, with just good practical information that we can put to work right now and help us to be better students of your word. Thank you for this privilege that we have. Help me to rightly divide your word of truth to be a help and not a hurt. And may Jesus be lifted up in all of this. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. And amen. All right. <clears throat> We're in Genesis 18, right? Um, maybe I should get there too. Nine questions. No matter what passage you're studying, nine questions to consider. Okay. Question number one. Is there an example for me to follow? 
Is there an example for me to follow? When you read Genesis 18, there's a narrative there. Many of us would be familiar with this. All right. Abraham's there. He's sitting and he looks up and he sees, he sees three men coming towards him. Two of those men are angels. And the other one is God himself. It's what's called a Christophany or a theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And they come to Abraham, and among other things, they tell him that Sodom and Gomorrah is doomed. Abraham's response is to plead with God for the souls of those who live there, most notably Lot and his family. And you remember that, you know, Abraham... It almost, it almost seems like a bargaining session. <coughs> and he finally gets him down to ten righteous. If there's just ten righteous, would you spare it for ten righteous? And God says, I will. When we read that narrative, if we'll let it, it'll speak to us and give us an example for us to follow. What kind of examples are being given that I should, I, could, I should consider following. Number one, you see a man who is passionately praying. That's always a good example to follow. A man who is passionately pleading with God. That's a good example to follow, isn't it? How about this? In his pleading, Abraham is pleading for souls. We as New Testament Christians, even though this is way back in the Old Testament, can we make an application there that we should be pleading for souls? Yes. That's a great application to follow. And not just lots. I don't think this was just about lot. Certainly that was probably forefront in his mind. But I don't think that Abraham was indifferent to everybody else. If he was, then why didn't he stop with just the Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Lot's family would have been eight, I think, at the least. Huh? Seven. Seven. Lot, his wife, two daughters. He had two sons-in-law. And then there'd be nine if they were married, right? I don't know. Point is, less than ten. Why did he stop at ten and not go down to the exact number of the family? I think, I think Abraham had a heart for souls. We don't see anything in Abraham's character. We don't have anything in Abraham's character to suggest that he was, that he was uh, aggressive towards people not like him. He's praying for souls. Now, here's, here's maybe my favorite one of all of it. We're in chapter 18. Look at verse 25. Abraham rightly recognizes the intrinsic goodness of God no matter what. God has just told him, I'm going to kill all these people. And what is Abraham's response in verse 25? He says, that be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? What's Abraham saying? Yes, he's pleading against the destruction of all these people, but at the end, what does he say? I know that you're going to do right. I know. Boy, that's an example to follow, isn't it? No matter what kind of negative things are happening around us, I know 
that the judge of all the earth does right. So, these are all examples that we would do well to follow. Maybe you're in a passage, maybe you read it this morning for devotions or something you've been studying through. Right now, I am sure if you give it a little bit of thought, you can think of an example to follow. Number two, let's go over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Question number two. Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a sin to avoid? Jesus is again challenging the mindset of the Pharisees. He is offering them a different standard of morality. In this particular passage, he's specifically speaking on the matter of adultery. Verse 27. You've heard that it's said of them by, by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. What is Jesus saying? You all have this idea that because Exodus 20, they wouldn't have understood it as Exodus 20 back then, but, but because it says there, thou shalt not commit adultery, that as long as you keep your hands to yourself, you're fine. <clears throat> Wrong. The sin starts here, long before it makes its way to your body. And Jesus is begging them to see this. And what happens is you've got a lot of Christians who rest in the idea that, well, I haven't committed these sins physically, so I am especially godly. That would be contrary to what Jesus is saying here. I come from a tradition of churches that are extremely conservative about things like dress and music and where they will and won't go and things like that. And by the way, I don't begrudge anybody that. I am thankful for my heritage. I am thankful for the, the uh, culture in which I grew up. I would not be where I am without that. And I, I, am, I am really quick to appreciate strong, consistent, now that's a key word, consistent standards in people's lives. But one thing that I've observed my whole life is there is a very real tendency, if you have high outward standards and expectations, that if people check off that list and manage to you know, dress in a certain way, and we don't listen to this music, and we don't go to the movie theaters, and we don't do this, and we don't do that, there's a, there's, there's, it's so easy to get in your head. We're spiritual. We're pleasing to God. Now, I'm not begrudging those standards. But we got to be super careful because what is Jesus saying here? It's not enough that you outwardly keep away from stuff. What's going on here? What's going on here? Because that's where the real battle is. And so as I read the Bible, when I read this passage, 
I don't just lean back and say, well, I mean, you know, I've, I've never cheated on my wife. I'm in good shape. No, what happens to me is I get under conviction because according to Jesus' standard, I have. Preacher. I'm not alone. Keep the heart with all diligence. For out of it are the, come the issues of life. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And I can't rest in this pseudo-spirituality that I've never been with another woman if I allow my mind to wander where it shouldn't. And when you take that standard, you see a whole lot more sins in the Bible to avoid than you thought were there. In the book, it mentions a guy that the author was counseling. He said, I didn't realize how bad my marriage was until I started studying Scripture. And you know, the world's like that. If you watch the average sitcom, you would think that a normal marriage, there's constant fighting and bickering and dad's an idiot and the kids are all rebellious and that's just how it's supposed to be. But you start studying the scriptures and you see God's pattern for things, you find out it's supposed to be a lot better than what the world presents. Is there a sin to avoid? Number three. Let's go to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Is there an example to follow? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Now, we got to be super careful about this because not every promise in God's Word is meant for everybody. People love to get verses and put them on their wall or tattoo them on them or whatever else. And claim a promise, and, and a lot of times when you look at it, you realize it wasn't for them. Well, the Bible says that God will bless those that bless me and curse those that curse me. No, it doesn't. He's talking about the Jews. As a Gentile and as a member of the church, I can't claim a bit of that. Now, does God take care of his children? Of course he does. But that particular promise doesn't apply to me. It applies to the Jews. I am, not, I am not due not one square inch of property from Dan to Beersheba in the Middle East. That's a promise to Israel. Thankfully, God does make some promises to unsaved people that aren't coming to me either. Right? What does he promise for people that reject Christ? Hell, that's not for me either. I don't want that. I'm not claiming that one. You know, but there are plenty of promises even in the Old Testament that you can claim. And when I get in, we've talked about that in the past. What can I claim and not claim and that kind of thing? But, but I'll tell you what. Let's let's look at Philippians four. If you're reading through Philippians four, and you'll see in that chapter there is two promises at least presented here. Verse number thirteen: I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. What's that? That's a promise for power. I just, I can't. If God's called you to do it, you can. What God demands, He'll enable. 
God pays for what he orders and he will never command you to do anything that he won't empower you to do it. Well, I, I would tell people about Jesus, but I, I just can't. All right, then either you're a liar or God is. Because you can. There's a promise for power here. But you know, there's also a promise for provision. You keep reading to verse 19. But my God shall supply how much you need? All of it. All I need, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Are we actively searching for promises that apply to us as the church and claiming them? I'm concerned that by the ninth question, I'm going to have morphed into Mr. Haney from Green Acres. I'm about there now. Mr. Douglas, I've got a great deal for you. I can tell he didn't watch Green Acres. Is there an example for me to follow? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Number four, is there a prayer to repeat? I've mentioned this one many times. You know that as part of my Bible reading, this doesn't make me not a bit more spiritual than anybody else. But as a part of my Bible reading, I find myself every day in Psalm 51. Now, we've got to be careful to avoid what's called vain repetition. Matthew chapter 6, particularly verse 7, Jesus tells us to avoid vain repetition. What's that? That's when it becomes empty. You're just repeating words for religion's sake. And we know where that most often happens. Father, thank you for this food. Isn't it so easy for that just to be a little ritual that you do before you eat? Now, again, you don't have to be silly about it either. I told you about the basketball coach that we had when I was in high school. He was a preacher from a church across town. And he was... Uh, his father-in-law was Jimmy Robbins down in South Carolina. How many of y'all know that name? Well, if you know that name, then you know that kind of tradition. Very loud, bombastic kind of fundamentalism. It had been in the same kind of vein as uh, Joe Arthur, <laughs> who's our friend. Well, he took it to a new level. We were out, we were out for, we were coming back from an away game or we were out on visitation or something. We went to a, a food court in the mall and we're about to eat and we expected to stop and pray for our meal. But this man got up on a table in the food court and silenced the entire food court, explaining to them that we were about to pray. And of course, we being the spiritual kids that we were, we were like, oh my soul, you don't have to do that. But boy, be careful. Be careful. When you thank God for the food, thank him. Remember where it came from. There's not a one of us that has anything in our lives that we don't have because God gave it to us. So be careful about vain repetition. But even so, there is great power in praying the scriptures. As long as care is taken not to allow it to become an empty recitation. And I've told you, I've prayed Psalm 51 every day for years because it perfectly captures 
the spirit of repentance. Now, there are times that I I come up short and I fail God and I say something simply like, Lord, I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have thought that. Please forgive me, Lord. I'm sorry I let you down. But sometimes if I'm feeling especially burdened about it, if I'm, if I'm, you know, you understand sin is sin and all that, but, you know, just, it, just something that, that maybe I just really feel like has a stronger consequence than others. I'll find myself, have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sins are ever before me. And it's not a vain, empty recitation to me. I'm thinking about what it says. And I can't say it any better than David did. Is there a prayer to repeat? So, is there an example for me to follow? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a prayer to repeat? Question five. Is there a command to obey? You can turn there if you like. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus is about to ascend back up into heaven. We see the fifth of five examples of what we call the Great Commission. Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John chapter 20. And Jesus says, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye may be witnesses. No, ye shall be witnesses unto me. Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. Five times we see Jesus give a command from any perspective This is clearly an imperative to God's people to seek to win the lost, to baptize them into local churches, and disciple them in the Word of God. And I must ever be watchful for commands in God's Word that I am responsible to obey. Now listen to this statement. We will never enjoy guidance from God's Word if we refuse to obey its directives. I've been reading the Bible trying to find an answer for my, my problem and just God's not giving me anything. The first question I'm going to ask is the first question I ask of myself. Am I obeying everything it says? Because if I refuse to obey, then why should God speak to me about direction and guidance? Is there a command to obey? Question six. Let's go back to the Psalms again. Too far. Psalm 37, 4. Is there an example for me to put? <laughs> Is there an example for me to follow? I am not hopped up on cold medicine tonight. I am slurring my words as though I am, but I am not. Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a prayer to repeat? Is there a command to obey? Question number six. Is there a condition to meet? 
There are many if-then passages in Scripture, right? If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, pray, seek their face, turn from their wicked ways, then, right, I'll hear from heaven. It's an if-then. Well, Psalm 37, though it doesn't say if-then, Psalm 37.4 is a clear conditional promise. God presents conditions, and if you meet these conditions, I'm going to bless you. Now, what does he say in Psalm 37.4? Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. If you'll delight yourself in me, I'll give you the desires. This is the condition that you need to meet. Now, most of you have heard me cover this a thousand times. That's a bit of hyperbole, but you know, a lot. But let's, for those that maybe, or maybe you're watching online, that maybe you don't know what, what this is saying. This is not saying if you're happy in the Lord, you'll get whatever you want. I think we all know that's not how it works. The word delight, just like the word for meditate, has the idea of a cow chewing its cud. The word delight had a use in Hebrew as well. And it was the idea of a reed just blowing in the wind. Well, in the Bible, in our New Testament understanding, who is represented by a wind? Spirit of God, right? The Holy Spirit. So when we put that together, what we understand delighting in the Lord to mean is to be joyfully flexible in God's service. Whatever way His Holy Spirit blows you, just bend with it. Whatever you want for me, Lord. Just whatever. That's delighting in the Lord. And if you'll do that, if you'll meet that condition, here's what He promises to do for you. He does not promise to give you the fruit of your desire. I want a million dollars. If I delight myself in the Lord, He'll give me a million dollars. That is not what it says. Delight yourself also in the Lord. And he'll give you the desire. How did I know that God called me to be a pastor? I remember where I was the moment God called me to preach. Well, the last time God called me to preach when I finally said yes. I was in the parking lot of a church in Bristol, Tennessee. I was at a camp meeting there. You see it on the left if you're going down 81. There have been times that I have stopped there in that parking lot and spent a little time thanking the Lord. I ran into the pastor at a meeting one time. His name's Brad Davis. At least it was then. I assume he's still there. I ran into him somewhere and I said, "Uh, if you happen to ever see me in your parking lot, I mean you no harm. That's the very spot that God called me to preach. He said something interesting. I assume he's telling me the truth. Oh, I've seen you. Okay. Evidently he didn't think I meant harm. But uh, that's the place I surrendered. But then once you surrender the call to preach, then the question is, okay, how does that materialize? And you may go a long time before God gives you any specificity on that. 
But when somebody says, how do you know God called you to be a pastor? The best I knew how, I was completely submissive and flexible to the will of God in my life. Whatever he wanted, if he wanted me to go overseas as a missionary, I was prepared to go. If he wanted me in, you know, evangelism, I was prepared to do it. I was willing. But can I be candid with you? I did not want to be a missionary. I did not want to be an evangelist. I did not want to be a youth pastor. I've never been gifted for that. I am so awkward around teenagers, more so than I am adults. So how did I know I needed to be a pastor? Because I wanted to be. Do you call any evangelist that we know and you ask them, do you enjoy what you do? Man, I love it. Dave Young comes to mind. Dave Young told me one time, he said, I have no idea why anybody would want to stay in one place and deal with all the same problems. Sometimes over and over again. I come in, I preach, and I leave. And I love it. And that's when I say, I have no idea why anybody would want to live in a fifth wheel and be in a different place every week. The fifth wheel I can get. They're very nice these days. But, but be in a different place every week with different people, not knowing how much you're getting that week. I have a pretty reasonable expectation of what I'm getting paid every week. Evangelists don't enjoy that. You know? He loves it. I love what I do. How did I know I was supposed to come to fellowship? Y'all know we candidated other churches during that time. I candidated a church in Tennessee. I candidated a church in Michigan. I candidated a church in North Carolina. And in every one of those instances, Lord, we are, as best we know, we are flexible to your will. Whatever you want, we will joyfully flex to it. And at the end of the day, he did one of two things. He either gave us a clear door shut. You're not going there. Or we went there and didn't like it. I don't want to go here. We candidated one church in North Carolina. And in between services, we stayed in the prophet's chamber. <laughs> yeah, it was a broom closet. Now, that didn't have anything to do with our decision, but we sat in the auditorium in between services, just me and Crystal. You know what she said? Honey, I'll follow you anywhere. But I hope it's not here. Well, that's a pretty good sign. So my wife's a godly woman. My wife's godlier than I am, no question. You might not believe it, but she is. So how did we know that fellowship was the place? Two things. Bearing in mind, we were flexible to the Lord's will. One, he voted us in. Had you not, that would have been a pretty good sign. God didn't mean for us to be here. If you voted no, then okay, that's a pretty good sign. The other is, yeah, I'd like to be here. I like this place. I like these people. You know? If you'll be flexible to the Lord's will, he will give you the right desires. That's a condition to meet. 
And the Bible's full of them. Spent too much time on that. Let's keep moving. Question seven. Is there a verse to memorize? We're still in Psalms. Let's go to Psalm 119. Is there a verse to memorize? All Scripture, man, all Scripture is equally inspired. And now please hear me well here, because I don't want you to leave here saying I'm a heretic. All Scripture is equally inspired, but not necessarily equally inspirational. We understand it all to be the Word of God and all of it's necessary. You can't leave any of it out. But when it comes to scriptures that speak to you and move you, some do and some don't. And I can prove it. How many of you would say there's at least one scripture that I know from heart? Jesus wept, if nothing else. Okay. Let's take John 3.16 as our example. Just about everybody that I've ever known could quote that. Even people lost as a ball in the tall grass could quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How about Isaiah 41.10? Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not afraid, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. How about 1 Thessalonians 5.24? Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. How about... Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. How about John 14? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. He goes on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. How about when he told Martha in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. How about one that I've called upon many, many, many times? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How about where sin abounded, grace doth much more abound. How about for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we could go on and on and on of scriptures that were inspirational to us. Now I wonder how many of you in here 
in the deep, dark night, when you were hurting, when you needed something from God, the Holy Spirit brought to your mind. And the sons of Kohath were Amram and Izhar and Hebron and Uziel. Probably never. Equally as inspired. Not quite as inspirational. But needed. There's certain verses that we need to commit to memory for use throughout our lives. And we see this in verse 11, Psalm 119, 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. A verse that would be an example of this is one that we reference every lesson. Verse 18. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Which, by the way, is another category. Isn't it? A prayer to repeat. Every time I sit down to study the word of God, I whisper that. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Is there an example for me to follow? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a prayer to repeat? Is there a command to obey? Is there a condition to meet? Is there a verse to memorize? Go to 1 Timothy 4, please. 1 Timothy 4. Is there an error to mark? First Timothy four. Now this error isn't necessarily an error that you have. It's just an error in general. First Timothy four, verse thirteen. He's speaking to Timothy, he said, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying, hand, laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself, and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself, and them that hear thee. Twice in these verses we see the word doctrine. What is doctrine? Simple, the simplest definition is doctrine is what the Bible teaches about anything. Theology is what the Bible teaches about God, specifically the Father. Christology is what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. Pneumatology is what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit. Soteriology is what the Bible teaches about salvation. Ecclesiology is what the Bible teaches about the church. Eschatology is what the Bible teaches about last things. Angelology is what the Bible teaches about angels. Very good. And so forth and so on. And what the Bible teaches about anything is important. Now, would you agree with me that there is a lot of doctrinal error out there? And when you're studying the Word of God, you will often encounter verses that address some biblical error that we have either heard or hold. 
Now remember, there's different variants of error. You have what I call faulty doctrine, which doesn't send anybody to hell, but it's not right. And you have false doctrine. What's an example of faulty doctrine? With all due respect to my friends who are Reformed, the idea that God has chosen some for salvation and damned others for damnation with no opportunity to call upon Him is completely foreign to me in this Bible. But it's not a false doctrine. because Can you believe that and still get saved? Yes. I've got friends that believe that Jesus is coming back in the middle of the tribulation or at some point called pre-wrath, which is kind of iffy when that is, or he's coming at the end, or he's not coming at all. I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. I can't see it any other way in Scripture. But if you want to believe God's coming, Jesus coming back in the middle of it, fine. Then you hang around. I'm going on up. Okay? That's faulty doctrine. But it's not false doctrine. But let me tell you why I've been able to come to these conclusions in my own study. Because I have studied the Bible for myself. And it stopped being about what my parents taught me or what the churches I grew up in taught me or what Dr. Bottlestopper, the famous preacher, taught me or what my college taught me or anything else. I have studied the Scriptures. Novel idea, the Holy Ghost of God taught me what the Bible says. And sometimes you'll be reading or studying and you'll hit a verse and you'll be like, wow, I need to rethink this. I may be in error. And then I start chasing it down. And before long, I've built a Bible study on that subject and I have come to this conclusion, I was in error. Then what happened? I have made use of my Bible study and an error to mark. But there's also false doctrine. And we need to be able to use this Bible for the weapon that it is, the sword of the Spirit, to help people with the errors that they hold to, things that we've heard. There are people in our town that believe that if you would be saved, you must go under the waters of baptism. What does that do? That adds works to grace. It is a damnable heresy. It's either grace or it's works. It can't be both. But when I study the scriptures, you know what I come to the conclusion of? That's an error, a grievous error. And when I reach a scripture that seems to address that, I mark it. Is there an error to mark? Last one. Let's go to James chapter 1. Is an example for me to follow? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a prayer to repeat? Is there a command to obey? Is there a condition to meet? Is there a verse to memorize? Is there an error to mark? And then number nine, of course, on the last one. Is there a challenge to face? You ever had your Bible study challenge you? If you're doing it right, it should. It should. 
anybody who's great at anything looks for ways to be challenged. Now, athletic performance and wins and losses are not the only parameter of greatness on a team. I get to help coach the girls. They're a great group of girls. I could not be more proud of them on the court and off than I am right now. But do I want them to achieve everything they can? Yeah. Winning's not everything, but it's something, and it's more fun than losing. And I want them to win as much as they can. Now, I'm not willing to sacrifice more important things to get there, but, you know. And if you really want to be great at something, you look for more ways to be challenged. Because resistance is what builds us, right? That's what weight training is. It's resistance that builds muscles. Like we have a drill that we do where they get into two lines and they do a layup. And the other, other line gets the rebound and goes back around and they just go back and forth. Really simple, basic drill that everybody does. All right, let's add a challenge. And I said, I want you to try something called a Euro. And I'm going to tell you, when you got a group of girls that have never tried a Euro before, it is comical to see the footwork. And then all of a sudden, they get it. And they see how it works. And how it can open up a shot opportunity they didn't have before. And then you see them do it in a game and it brings a tear to your eye. Challenge accepted. And now they're better. Okay, so let's add another challenge. You should have seen the look in their eyes when I walked into practice with two football tackling pads. You know, it's a big pad and it's got the handles on the back. What are you doing with that? I'm going to make it harder for you to make a layup. You see, one of the restrictions that I have as their coach is I can't forgive the term, I can't body up on them like I would guys. I wouldn't dare. Plus, you would think I'm afraid of hurting them. It's not generally how it goes. They tend to hurt me. <laughs> but this adds about six inches of padding between me and them, and I can push them all over the place. And it's very stress-relieving for me. And the first drill that we did, same layup drill, but I'm going to stand here with this pad, and my wife's going to stand here with this pad, and I want you to run through us and just get used to making contact. And boy, they needed that drill the other night. Get, make, get used to making contact, because that's how you draw fouls. We added a challenge. Now, there's one of our team members, she's so skinny, bless her heart, that she would slip through without touching the pads. I mean, she just right through. And I'm like, did she even come through? Was that? Now, there's a couple of them that are a little more advanced at it. I've got to make it harder. So what I do is I let them get through, and then I turn around and push them. Because it happens in a game. We added a wrinkle. We added a challenge. And the great ones like it let's get something else on this thing it's like in school 
You don't just teach them A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way to Z. Okay, kindergartners, you got it licked. Let's have some fun. No, there's more challenges to be added. And if you're a Christian, that's where you ought to be. You go to the Word of God and say, okay, Lord, what's here that can make me better? What's here that can make me more like Jesus? Bring on the challenge. And James covers this idea beautifully. In James chapter 1, verse 22, you know it. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty... And continueth therein. Anybody in your perfect? No. So if the perfect law of liberty is your standard, does that imply that there's a continual challenge there? Yeah. And continueth therein. Well, why is that important? Because continuing is only noteworthy when it's difficult to do so. It's not difficult to lay in bed. If I continue to lay in bed, ooh, big whoop. But if I continue to strive to get better and get more like Jesus, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So when I read the word of God, is there a challenge? And this passage challenges me when I read the word. Don't just be a reader. Don't just be a hearer. Be a doer. Apply it. Because all the observation and interpretation in the world is not helpful if we are not willing to ingest it and do it in application. Nine questions. Is there an example for me to follow? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a prayer to repeat? Is there a command to obey? Is there a condition to meet? Is there a verse to memorize? Is there an error to mark? Is there a challenge to face? Every, every time you study, you can ask these nine questions. I hope you will.